AT&T Threat Track is a roundtable discussion of security trends and news. Full video of this program can be found on YouTube by searching for AT&T Threat Track. All right, hi Matt, hi Manny, hey, and uh, this is that time of year where we scrutinize our predictions from last year. And uh, Manny, you and I were part of that, and Matt gets to just scrutinize. Yeah, <laughs> good at that. So uh, why don't we just go ahead and start, we'll start with mine, which was basically the software bill of materials was gonna gain traction in 2019. Software bill of materials will start to gain some real traction. You can't protect what you don't know you have. That kind of makes sense. You need inventory to, to know about that. And I think a lot of organizations are tracking the, um, their inventory of things now much better. But now we need to understand what things make up those things. So um, further decomposition. So we're getting more granular in terms of uh, what we need to track. Uh, software is no longer written. It's assembled. And I think that's kind of a cool, I hadn't seen this before. Um, but it's absolutely true. If you look at most of the software development activities that exist today, people pull pieces and parts, they put the pieces together and create new functionality with that. And they might have a little bit of integration or glue code around that to help facilitate it. But ultimately, the, the activities are really assembled as opposed to starting from scratch. I did say it was wishful thinking. Yes, you did. Uh, and curiously, and completely coincidentally, two weeks after our prediction, a uh, blog was posted on our own blog site at alienvault.com uh, by Rob Graham. Now, Rob Graham is an independent writer that, uh, that posted this blog as part of our, uh, our blog site, but he was actually quite skeptical of the notion that software build materials was actually gonna be useful. Okay. Um, and so uh, where he basically was coming from, I believe, is looking at it from a, um, uh, I mean, he was, perhaps pointing out some of the pitfalls that might happen. That is, ultimately, when you look at code, you really need to track it on a line-by-line -line level. That is, a vulnerability could be introduced at, uh, at the line level. Now, I tend to think of it a little bit differently. The fact of the matter is, I think that the, uh, the entire industry or the practice around software bill materials still needs to mature pretty significantly. Right. I did a little bit of research on you know, the notion of startups, there are some startups that are out there that are offering tools to be able to facilitate this type of thing. Uh, but when we think about code, it is trickier than you sort of your typical legacy or, you know, uh, existing software build material, excuse me, build materials for things that when you build hardware type things, right. you know, okay, yep. components are a little more recognizable. You can have serial numbers associated with those. It's difficult to have a serial number associated with a line of code. Right. right. Yeah. <laughs> the, the ability to modify any one of those lines of code to, to make right. it completely different, not completely different, but different enough product. Yes. And then you got to assign a serial number to that. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's um, and so, but I tend to think of it more in terms of like tracking what libraries are used, yep. you know, yep. at a module level, yep. file of, level. Right. And certainly their version things, uh, facets that are pretty tricky to track because a module could change uh, subtly between, you know, different dates. And so they, and how that translates from a security standpoint can be tricky as well. Um, just because there is a potential vulnerability in a module that does not necessarily translate to a vulnerability in a system that uses that module. Although on occasion that certainly 
sure. does turn out to be the yeah. case. Well, I mean, there's there's sometimes a right way and a wrong way to use a module. Like if you mm -hmm. if you do it the way that it was intended, and you're, you, whatever you bolt into it is secure or not secure, mm -hmm. then it's not dependent on the module; it's dependent on the use of the module. Yes. So. So the jury's still somewhat out on this topic, but I did do some additional research on this. And uh, so there is actually some activity, and I, I was not uh, acutely aware of this until investigating this for our discussion here today, but the National Telecommunications and Information Administration, this is a government organization, actually has some activities around this whole notion of software bill materials. And it's intended to be basically help foster improvement in securities and patch management and that type of thing. And um, so there were some activities around that, uh, and it's, it's currently active. There, in fact, the most recent update that I found on the site was as of November 18th, 2019. So it is active activity. And uh, they listed out, let's see, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 different activities that were citing software build materials as a part of the uh, practices, and a lot of them around open source software use. Uh, basically, Business Software Alliance is an example. I'll just pick out a couple. Uh, Food and Drug Administration had some activities around that. Uh, there are some things around uh, medical de device security where they're talking about using software build materials. So uh, there certainly are industry activities that are pulling for this type of activity, mm -hmm. uh, this capability. But as I said, I think there's still a lot of work to be done to mature that practice and be able to use it in a, in a practical way. Interesting. Yeah. I, I mean, I think about, you, you mentioned that there are startups in the field who are trying to develop solutions to create this software bill of materials for people. And that definitely feels like it's the very beginning of this whole process. I mean, we're not mm -hmm. at a point where like, I mean, for me, best, best case example would be there would be an open source tool that does this and everyone could do software build materials the single standard way mm -hmm. and it wouldn't be reserved for people who have the, the, the money and the willingness to bet on a, a startup just yeah. to get this done. Yeah, so th there's a lot of work that still needs to be done. And you know, the uh, OWASP is, is active in this. That's the Open Web Application Security Project. Uh, they, that's another one, uh, and it's actually specifically the component analysis project that was one of the ones, activities that was cited here that is uh, working mm -hmm. on that sort of activity. So that's, that would be your path toward an open source type solution. Sounds right. Uh, hopefully coming out. So, um, as I said, you know, still a lot of work that still needs, oh, by the way, the uh, Linux Foundation has the Open Chain project, which okay. is uh, 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 along similar lines. Um, so, still a lot of work to be done there, but I think it is actually starting to gain traction in terms of interest. Um, perhaps not as quickly as I would like to, but it isn't as straight, straightforward as it perhaps I was initially thinking. I did say at the beginning that it was uh, wishful thinking. I think it's uh, an important aspect of what we do. You know, what I tend to go back on is with the Heartbleed vulnerability. It's a very good example. There were a couple of others that were sort of like it. That is, we didn't realize that a lot of these proprietary tools that were out there, you know, software appliances, uh, that, that sort of thing that um, actually incorporated open source software and incorporated those vulnerabilities and ultimately had the vulnerability of Heartbleed. And as a member of the telecommunications industry, we we're faced with going out and patching an awful lot of appliances that were out there. And I include routers as appliances. And so there was a lot of work that had to come from that. And um, so this is an opportunity to have a better understanding of what's in tools, even from a manufacturing 
manufacturer's point of view, an appliance provider's point of view, to make sure they understand what's in there so that they can be in a better position to understand what potential vulnerabilities could exist. All right, yeah. All right. So you ready to, uh, to raise your prediction for 2020 on this from wishful thinking up to what's the next level? Uh, I think we're. I think 2020 <laughs> is really going to be a continuation of work to be able to get to yeah. something that's uh, that's practical. Although we yeah. do have a project internal to our organization that's looking at how we can use some of these tools to be able to do some right. yep. uh, get a better understanding of what uh, what's in the software. So let's go to our next prediction here, and this one was from John Markley. So this year, I wanted to give a little bit more out on the limb type prediction. And, uh, and that's uh, where we're going today. Uh, the prediction that I have is really based upon a trend I've seen uh, regarding Bluetooth. If you look at the patching that's occurred in the mobile world, the PC world, and even the IoT world, you've seen a lot of patching that occurs on the Bluetooth stack. You know, minor vulnerabilities, some major. And I keep seeing these every month. Every month there's something Bluetooth getting patched. And, and I have a suspicion that in 2019, we will continue to see researchers and the community look at the Bluetooth stack, look at, look at the protocol itself, and I suspect that we're going to find some vulnerabilities in the stack that can be exploited. Long behold, uh, I think we did see some of that. Um, Matt, I think you have some pretty good insight into a couple of the vulnerabilities that showed up in Bluetooth in 2019. Well, I think the major one for this year was the knob attack, which is the, the key renegotiation attack, mm -hmm. uh, which is very interesting. Um, the way that it works is that you've, you basically tamper with the key negotiation with, between two Bluetooth devices, and the, you keep telling each one that we want to we downgrade, 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 until you have the bare minimum amount of entropy in your key length, mm -hmm. which means that you've basically got a key that anyone can crack in... in almost no time. Yeah, and you know, this is very reminiscent of some of the problems that were showing up in SSL key negotiation. That's right, yeah. Is if you had some minimum level that was vulnerable, ultimately you could end up, and so there, was a lot, there were a lot of things, I think a poodle attack was an example I of think that, you're right? right? Yeah. And so there were a lot of activities put into place to basically upgrade the least allowed <laughs> encryption. Which, which you, right. you should be doing anyway over time, yeah. Yeah, um, absolutely. The weird, the thing about knob that I think is interesting, is that it's 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 a cool attack, it's compelling, but like, there's no good way to measure whether it's been seen in the wild or not unless people are reporting that it's actually mm -hmm. been used against them. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not like you can go scan the world of Bluetooth devices because it's a local mm -hmm. area wireless network to determine what the impact is or even how many devices are vulnerable. Yeah, there's so we really don't really, know. There's nothing in your face that says you were negotiated to. The, the minimum level of encryption. Right. And then the rest of it will be passive anyway, so there's no way to know. Yeah. Right. So how big of a deal was it this year? I don't know. I really can't tell you. You know, the thing I think that is perhaps as um, uh, concerning, you know, we there were a lot of activities around upgrading SSL to make sure that the minimum encryption was not vulnerable to this. Mm -hmm. Running around and upgrading a lot of Bluetooth devices is actually not even a, a, an available option. <laughs> yeah. And so there are uh, um, ramifications in that regard that, uh, you know, but you know, a lot of the Bluetooth devices that we'd be concerned about here are somewhat disposable anyway. They're going to be around for a couple or a few years. The battery wears out and replace it with Fingers else. crossed, right? That's right. <laughs> yeah. Some of us keep our phones for much longer than the, uh, the required time. Yeah. 
Um, and like IoT devices too. Like I, I, I realize there's already a problem with the internet facing IoT devices that don't get patched. Mm -hmm. Like if you've got a, something that has Bluetooth, forget it. It may not even have a way of getting a firmware upgrade to mm -hmm. it. Right. So, yeah, I think that's going to be the that's going to be the biggest problem there is that yeah. these devices are just there's so many of these devices. It's like every single manufacturer out there is probably making some sort of Bluetooth device. Mm -hmm. And like you said, right now you got to just hope that you know a couple of years go down and and most of them. And I say most because you know there's a lot of these things that tend to do stick around, you know, mm -hmm. people who hold on to technology for a lot longer than they should. So you're still going to have that problem. Um, I just don't know yet, like how big that problem is. And like you said, it's hard to really put your arms around how big it is. You know, no one really has a sense of like how much of that stuff is really out there. Yeah. And the good news, you know, it is, it is bound by proximity and it right. still is a cryptanalysis activity that is a, some reasonable amount of work has to go into presuming you execute the ability to downgrade the encryption in the first place there's still a reasonable amount of work so the combination of those things probably minimizes the amount of payoff and the likelihood that you, this is going to happen except perhaps under some extenuating circumstances this would have to be pretty targeted you'd have to really yeah. want to know you'd have to know who you were going after and then do the work to target them in particular. This is not a problem for, mm -hmm. you know, Joe Schmo with his, his smartphone and Bluetooth, mm -hmm. walk, you know, headset. You know, it's probably yeah. not going to affect them. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And what do you get? The contacts list. Well, that's the other thing. <laughs> right. What's, like, what's the impact getting... of sniffing Bluetooth traffic? <laughs> yeah. like, there may be some sort of very, you know, mission critical hardware out there that happens to use Bluetooth. Yeah. Uh, but off the top of my head, I can't really think of anything. Well, and hopefully, it's a patchable device if it's that. If it's that important, right? Hopefully, yeah. <laughs> you get the, the playlist off of my Spotify? I've seen that playlist. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, your music is still cool. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> so let's go on to the next one here. Manny, you had a prediction about MageCart. I took a look at some of the, the stories that we did this year. Um, in particular, we did a couple of stories on this you know, late in the year mm -hmm. uh, about uh, MageCart attacks. Mm -hmm. I think with the ramping up of it being a lot easier to get into this market of starting to sell stuff, that we're going to start seeing more and more of these types of attacks coming in the back end to basically mm -hmm. siphon off these credit cards. Last year, you know, looking at sort of what was happening, obviously from 2018 going into 2019, certainly, you know, MageCart, although it had been around for, you know, there's some some that say MageCart has been around since 2010. Mm -hmm. uh, I think. Uh, when I did the when we did the predictions last year, I think I had said something about 2016, kind of it starting to ramp up. So uh, the prediction was that you know obviously this past year that we were going to see a significant ramp up on MageCart attacks. So um, explain a little bit about what a MageCart attack is. What characterizes that? <clears throat> so a MageCart attack is basically, and and the, I will tell you the definition for MageCart attacks has blossomed mm -hmm. in the last year. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of things that have gotten stuffed into this into this uh, bucket now. But MageCart attacks are basically, you know, sort of <clears throat> online retail. It's online retail focused. So it is, in essence, the stealing of personal information, mostly credit card information, mm -hmm. off of online retail uh, sites. Mm -hmm. And so it's basically an attack on the site itself. So it's either finding a vulnerability on a site and then inserting some sort of code that 
in essence, skims off mm -hmm. the credit card data mm -hmm. from, the, from the site before it's, it's inserted into uh, the back end. Okay. I've heard of it described as basically like uh, a card skimmer like you'd find on an ATM or a gas pump, but for the internet. Yep. Mm -hmm. yep. Well, and I think that's one of the significant aspects about this, that is what is shifting the activity toward mage card approaches? So, so I read a couple of things about sort of why there may have been some sort of a shift. So uh, one of the, uh, the biggest reasons that I read out there was sort of the move to uh, chip, the chip te technology. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the uh, card manufacturers now are going to chip, which makes it harder to do sort of the actual, you know, skimming at the devices and stealing the, uh, the information off the card itself. Mm -hmm. So instead of going that route, right, the easiest way to get the information off of the card now is to steal it once you know, once that information from the card is actually being transmitted off of mm -hmm. off the card. So yeah. you're, it's basically card not present fraud, which is how the Correct. internet operates with credit card yeah. purchases. Yep. Yeah, so it, I mean, there's been definitely a big shift that PCI is required at least, to, and I don't know the specifics around it, but I think it's for large retailers that they have, uh, they require the use of the chip yep. as a part of the point of sale. And, you know, a lot of the threats that had existed previously were embedding malware on the point of sale devices or actually even just putting an overlay on top of point of sale yep. devices mm -hmm. to be able to scan uh, the cards as they're read from the magnetic stripe. Yep. Uh, the chip basically obviates that sort of a threat and so we're seeing a shift in terms of the type of threat. And I suspect perhaps another facet of this is because online retailing has become so much more prominent at the demise of you know, some of the uh, you know, brick and mortar type yep. retail environments, the opportunities for theft in that space are probably greater. It's, it's funny you say it. Yeah, I was thinking of it in terms of, um, I mean, when I started doing security for the company, Zeus was big, you know? Mm. You would compromise somebody's endpoint and then when they went to their bank or yep. their online retailer or entered their credit card number, that's where they would be stolen. Here you're, you're taking it and you're putting on the one, the one website and that's the watering hole for everyone to come to. Mm -hmm. uh, it sounds like it's a little more work to actually compromise a major website, but then you don't have to compromise hundreds of thousands of hosts to get the cards mm -hmm. that way. <clears throat> but well, there's also a shift now to attacking the supply chain. So we know now that a lot of online retailers are now basically pooling their sort of research. So I, you know, I've, I'm a mom and pop shop. I, I set up shop. I don't want to do the the collection of cards and stuff. So I offshoot that to a third party. Mm -hmm. So there's third parties now that are doing this card collection for a whole host of online retailers. Guess where now they're focusing their attacks mm -hmm. is let's not go after you know 10,000 mom and pop shops because they all use right. This, mm -hmm. this third party, so I'll, I'll go after the third party and set up my shop there. Well, the name Magecart came from Magento originally. Yeah. That whole online platform for creating a shop very easily was, the, I mean, you yep. figure out how to hack Magento, you figured out how to hack hundreds of sites. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing that you mentioned, you know, you go after the card processing website and attack them that way, but I've heard that they also will go after like common JavaScript libraries. Yeah. Where there's something you might pull in that, that makes your site look a little easier or work a little faster instead of developing it all yourself, you just, load that directly from the, the third-party site and you set it up so that's okay, uh, except when that has the malware inside of it. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, you, you, it, is a, it is a supply chain kind of a problem. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, what's the synopsis? Do you think 
the prediction was accurate. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I saw some numbers and some of the numbers are kind of scary. Um, they're, first of all, they're, they're now tracking like over 15 major um, crime syndicates that are now tied directly to mage card attacks. So now they're starting to actually name, right? It's like groups, you know, I think they're actually naming they're them numbered, group right? numbered. It's yeah. just one through 15 mm -hmm. is group one, two, three. So every one of them is a known uh, syndicate that is using these techniques. So mm -hmm. clearly it, those numbers are jumping up. Uh, I saw numbers of two million uh, victim websites over the last year. That's a um, big number. And over, breached oh, more than 18,000 hosts. Mm. So, I mean, that's a significant number. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think the prediction is definitely that it's trending upwards, mm -hmm. which I think is really in line with what I was yeah. trying to say. And there have been some major major names that have been victims of this. There have. We need to go yeah. into the details of that, but it's yep. not as if it's just, you know, little things off to the side. Yep. Been no, yeah, there's at least four or five major yeah. retailers that yep. got hit. And you could add one over this, this last Black Friday weekend, there was a major retailer that was hit as well. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so maybe that provides a little bit of a segue to our next segment here, which is uh, what are the trends that we've seen over 2019? And uh, Manny, what are your thoughts on this? It seems like they're, this notion of pivoting is right. a theme. Yeah. So, I mean, so this, this definitely this notion of sort of, you know, having a, an initial t attack vector. Um, that works for some time and then realizing that, hey, something has changed, so now I'm gonna switch it over. So, um, I, and I think we've seen quite a bit of that over the year. Um, so I, I think from a, from a, from a two-factor perspective, I think mm -hmm. we've seen quite a bit of, you know, we've seen over the year certainly a lot of emphasis on moving things to two-factor, mm -hmm. right, for many reasons. You know, so fishing today, um, I think this year, a trend in, in, uh, in phishing schemes and campaigns, mm -hmm. certainly we've seen. And so with that, that shift, we're shifting now towards two-factor authentication being a, a, a major thing. Mm -hmm. um, but well, there's still I, some problems with that, right? Yeah, I, th I think that's one of the, uh, it's, that's sort of my observation here is that um, it's, it's well recognized that passwords aren't sufficient. Yep that they were relatively easily fished or social, social engineered in some manner or form. Uh, and then even though there's been a move, a big move toward one-time pins as a, I'll say a second factor or a complement to passwords, yep. uh, ultimately those are, are target of phishing yep. or other types of attacks as well. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it definitely lessens the amount of time that an attacker can use those valid credentials. Mm -hmm. But in a targeted attack, as opposed to like someone who's just trying to collect hundreds of thousands of username password pairs, mm -hmm. a targeted attack will actually take the time to sit there and wait and see the new one come in and immediately, you know, use those credentials wherever they need to be yeah. used, get the session and then do their job. Yeah, so. it still raises the work factor for the attacker, but it's, uh, it, I think we still have some work in the industry in general to improve authentication mechanisms to uh, make them less susceptible to phishing, that is to get the user out of that process, and hopefully make it easier for users in that process as well, and to be able to make them less susceptible to uh, phishing type of attacks. Now, we would expect that there's probably some additional pivot that will come from that, right? Most likely. <laughs> I mean, this is, we're affecting their bottom line by locking them out, so yeah, they'll, they'll always be pivoting. Yeah. 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 Yep. Okay. Uh, Matt, what trends have you seen? So. I remember a couple years ago, we were dealing with you know, ransomware on a regular basis. 
And over the last year, I really haven't seen that many cases of it. Mm -hmm. uh, so I went and looked to see if anybody else is seeing the same thing. And Microsoft, this is where the random ransomware, right? And that's, that's where I'm going with this, <laughs> is that the, the, the garden variety, like somebody's, you know, grandma's PC is locked up and you've got to pay X number of Bitcoin to get it back. Um, that seems to be on the, on the, the down slope. Mm -hmm. uh, and I actually did find a Microsoft report that came out recently saying as much mm -hmm. that um, garden variety ransomware targeting whoever happens to get installed is, is sort of going away. On the other hand, targeted ransomware against particular organizations who have the ability to pay large sums of money is on its way up. And mm -hmm. if you go to the news, you'll, you'll see you know, school districts, uh, businesses, airports, people who have mission critical stuff that has to be on all the time, mm -hmm. or, you know, I mean, I guess you wouldn't call a school district necessarily that, but you know, it, it hurts when a school district has to pay that amount of money. Mm -hmm. um, those are the targets that people are shifting to, and they're, they're doing things like scanning for RDP, uh, and sometimes delivering through email. Um, but yeah, it seems like they're going for people who they know are much more able and more willing to pay. I mean, because mm -hmm. some people will take a look and say, I could you know, spend hundreds of, of dollars to get back a couple of my, my personal photos, but is it really worth it? As opposed to, my airport has to work today, or my mm -hmm. business has to work today, I'm going to more like, I'm be more likely to pay the, the ransom. Mm -hmm. In general, we, we say not to pay the ransom, um, but I understand the motivation when people do. Yeah, it's interesting because I think this really kind of, this the beginning of this trend kind of started, I think, a few years ago. Sam mm -hmm. Sam, I, I kind of attribute to be the sort of the first group or activity around this type of targeting a business and and doing a ransomware on a sort of a broader basis for perhaps a bigger payoff mm -hmm. uh, with perhaps less effort, I'm not sure. Uh, but ultimately, um, I, th I think it was just actually a month or two ago that there was, uh, I think at least indictments associated with the uh, actors behind this Samsung ransomware. Uh, and, I but the, missed that one. But the trend has actually still grown. That is, uh, there are others that have joined in they to, see that uh, it works. Facilitate yeah. other types of activities. And, you know, in many cases, even when there are indictments of that sort, it's not necessarily the whole group that gets the indictments. And so there may be others that are still activity. And off the top of my head, I should probably check here, but the um, I don't recall if it was actually just indictments or if there were actually arrests associated with that. Okay. Um, if, sometimes if they're in other countries and right. extradition may take time if it's possible at all. But there is there is a little bit of good news, I think, that we can sprinkle into this because I do recall in the last year that we did see a couple stories where, um, you know, like a, a state agency or something gets hit um, and they end up not paying mm -hmm. because they had sufficient backup in place mm -hmm. so that they, you know, could just say, all right, that's fine. You know, we're not going to we're not going to pay. We'll just, you know start up the, uh, the, the, the backup generator and, uh, and mm -hmm. get all the backups in place and, and we won't pay. So I know I saw at least a couple stories where it, they refused to pay be, just because they were prepared for that, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, I think that's, a, that's gonna be an important trend going forward is that as businesses think about their business continuity to incorporate a cyber attack as part of the um, preparedness that they need to be considering. Yep. Um, you know, it, it might be a ransomware type thing or it might be just a destructive attack that they need to be prepared for. And I think it's well established in any business that has, you know, critical IT infrastructure to um, basically plan for a disaster, you know, a hurricane or a flood or something like that and have 
redundancy in terms of data centers, mm -hmm. that provides a really good opportunity from a cyber attack standpoint to make sure that there's separation between the two. Uh, from a yep. network standpoint, from a administrative control standpoint, and to be more resilient against that type of an attack. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I think ultimately, it's the same impact, right? Your computers are gone, whether they're flooded or the, you know, mm -hmm. a tree fell on your data center or something mm -hmm. like that, or ransomware has knocked them all offline. Mm -hmm. They're gone. You mm -hmm. need a plan for that. Yeah. yeah. The, uh, the the one difference is geography doesn't protect you. <laughs> this is true. Yeah, you can't put everything up on a hill and be like, cool, I'm, I'm safe from floods and cyber attacks. Yes, it doesn't work. All right, very good. So one of the trends that I've seen over the last year, I think there's been a lot of discussion in the news around you know China and intellectual property theft. And I think it is actually kind of interesting because we were actually in the throes of having identified a lot of industrial espionage activity up until about 2015, mm -hmm. where uh, the Obama administration had set up basically an agreement with China where it would not be allowed to use cyber attack for commercial gain. So it basically took economic espionage out of play. What they did not include as a part of that is um, national defense type activities. And so, it, there are still continued to be attack activities toward the defense industrial base or with DIB is often referred to and Department of Defense directly. And I think what I've seen sort of in trends over the last year or so um, is the tendency to kind of expand that. So if you read some of the news articles, there have been cases where um, the medical industry had been targeted. I don't really attribute that to necessarily a, um, you know, sidestepping that agreement per se, but I think the interpretation is, my interpretation of the situation is, is extended to sort of a national welfare thing that is agricultural, medical research, you know, protecting the, uh, the national welfare has kind of been incorporated in. So, I believe that there has been a sort of a expansion in the trends of attacks that have taken place and um, the, uh, the types of targets that are considered allowable under that agreement. Um, I don't think that was the intent of the agreement, but I think that is a trend that has been seen. So, you know, organizations that are in that space doing research and medical technology, things like that, need to be uh, paying attention so that they are sufficiently protected against those types of attacks. Yeah, yeah, and I, I mean, look, I mean, here, the the thing is, is when you, you see those types of things being uh, put forth in terms of, you know, hey, the, we're going to set these agreements up. We all know. I think we can all uh, agree that those types of agreements, a lot of times, there's a lot of gray area in those agreements, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. it's like, it's like you, if you don't, if it's not absolutely clearly defined bullet by bullet, like here's what you can and cannot do, um, you know, there's definitely going to be those grayish areas where, like you said, it's like, yeah, I think we can sort of, we can still do this because mm -hmm. it doesn't quite meet the, yeah. the initial. I, and, you know, I haven't done a, a detailed analysis right. of what the terms of the agreement actually were. I was basically basing this on what was posted. It's actually in the archives from whitehouse.gov. Uh, where they described what the terms of that agreement were. And, you know, it perhaps was um, whittled down into layman's terms for the uh, general public interest, and there may be some more uh, legally concise terminology associated with that agreement, yep. or perhaps not. 
but ultimately <laughs> it was focused toward uh, basically commercial gain. And you know, one could argue that if you're trying to protect the welfare of your society, of your nation, through agriculture or medical type theft, that uh, perhaps that is not covered under the agreement. Yep. And so uh, it seems to be a trend. Uh, I believe that um, you know, perhaps there'll be additional things that will come to try to resolve that. But as it is right now, uh, organizations in those industry areas should be paying attention. I agree, yep. All right, very good. Cool. Anything else for today? What do you think for 2020? Do <laughs> I think we're going to be constantly surprised. Yeah, constantly right. surprised, and yet you not know, at all. You know, Matt, I think you have a really good point there because, you know, it's very difficult, in my opinion, to make really good solid predictions about security because the tendency is the big news stories come out of things that nobody was paying attention to. Yeah. They didn't realize that they needed to pay attention to that. And all of a sudden it's a problem and there's a big shift in that direction. Startups coming out of the world work. And but the ability to say that it generally means that we shouldn't be surprised at all. It's, it's yeah. going to be a surprise, surprise, but we shouldn't be surprised. Don't but. be surprised by the surprises. Right. All right, I think that's a good way to that's sum right. it up. That's right. All right, very good. Look forward to 2020. Thanks. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.